Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee holds the Cyber Risk Oversight Certification from the National Association of Corporate Directors. He is Associate Professor in the Management Information Systems Department at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University Visiting Scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity Program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. The latest disaster recovery statistics reveal that modern businesses still face costly interruptions due to a variety of threats, ranging from ransomware attacks to sudden hardware failures. The monetary costs of disasters and outages can be significant. According to results from Uptime Institute's annual outage analysis, a 2023 survey, 25% of respondents reported in 2022 that their latest outage incurred more than a million dollars in direct and indirect costs. And this has been a consistent upward trend as far as expenses go. In addition, the survey finds that 45% reported the cost of their most recent outage ranged between $100,000 and a million dollars. I'd like to share with you a few other significant stats. From 2019 through 2022, 96% of organizations experienced at least one incidence of downtime. One in five organizations experienced serious outages in the past three years. More than half of small businesses that experience a cyber attack will go down within six months. That's another very significant finding. 58% of data backups fail. Just over half of the organizations surveyed had disaster recovery plans. And finally, around 7% of organizations never test their disaster recovery plans. So given the state of affairs, I think we need somebody like Sagey Brody, co-founder and chief technology officer at Optinine to shed light on the various aspects of disaster recovery. Seiji, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we get into the details, share with listeners some of your professional journey highlights. Yeah, um, I co-founded an organization called WebAir about um, 20-something years ago, which focused hosting critical applications, typically web-based applications for our customers. And those were typically, you know, websites to start. And and as sort of the industry matured, we scaled with our customers. And, you know, at some point that those grew into very intricate and large web-based applications. 
requiring resilience and security and and scalability and all of that. And so we we grew that business. We ended up having a focus on mid market enterprise, uh, highly regulated industries hosting their critical production infrastructure. And then later on, we started to focus on and you know maybe more similar to what you're talking about is we started to focus on providing backups as a service in a fully managed way, not only for organizations who whose production infrastructure we were hosting, but also folks that were were running their own production on their own or somewhere else. And then eventually that turned into doing the same thing for fully managed disaster recovery as a service. Uh, eventually, we merged that business with two other organizations, one focused on doing similar things strictly on public cloud, and one focused on backups and disaster recovery in Canada. Uh, and so now we we rebranded that company to Optinine, and we continue to provide those types of services across the hybrid cloud landscape. Fantastic. Thanks for that insight. So, Seiji, let's give listeners an overview of what disaster recovery entails. I'll let you go ahead, and I can jump in if I want to. <laughs> Sure. Well, I think when people think about disaster recovery, well, the first is people sort of confuse backups and disaster recovery. To them, it's it's one and the same. And, and I'd say the first thing you got to understand is the differences between them. Backups and is obviously something that becomes available. You know, for I'd say it's a, you, you kind of split backups into sort of local backups for immediate file recovery or immediate sort of re- restoration of files. Uh, offsite backups, obviously, to do the same thing, more for long-term archival data, uh, and obviously for a, a longer, it's going to take longer to recover your data. So when you think of backups, I like to think of the word recover. When you think of disaster recovery, I like to think of the word resume. You're not restoring data, you're resuming your business operations after a disruption. And when you think about disaster, so you know they both are similar in that you're copying your critical data somewhere else, fine. Um, but that's, I think, where they stop. You know, having a copy of your data somewhere is probably the, the least challenging part of a proper disaster recovery strategy these days. Um, there are great tools out there, great replication tools that make that process easy. But where the challenge really comes in is great. You have your data somewhere else, but how are you? What is your strategy to ensure that your users, your internal users, or your customers are able to consume your applications in the same way that they did in production? And that is really a networking challenge. It's an application challenge. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is is they sort of build their entire production infrastructure or their application, get it all up and running, make it perfect. And then later on, and then it's like, okay, now we will we will focus on disaster recovery. Problem is imposing a disaster recovery strategy on an already built, let's say, application is much more difficult than sort of having resilience to be part of your thought process as you go along building your production environment, right? So anyway, when it, just to answer your question, you know, obviously we need replication in place. We need to understand what the consumption strategy looks like, and that flows us into networking. We need to understand security. People forget about security of their DR strategy. You, you know, what we don't, we have a copy of all our most critical data somewhere. Let's be sure that that doesn't expose us to more risk. And then obviously we need incident response plans or, you know, run books for what we do during a disaster. Not only that, but we need run books for what do we do for this type of disaster? What do we do for that type of disaster? You know, there are different run books if we need to fail over one application versus our entire, uh, our entire environment. Um, we need a separate run book for testing. Today, a lot of people have their applications highly 
integrated with third-party SaaS platforms. So let's be sure that when we test our DR infrastructure um, and we're testing the applications, we're not poisoning our production data sitting somewhere else inadvertently. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, um, I wanted to emphasize that, and I think this is consistent with what you're saying, that disaster recovery is much more than backup. It is essentially a reflection of an organization's ability to recover as quickly as possible and resume normal operations. So in other words, you know, when I think about disaster recovery, I think it's a reflection of how resilient an organization is. So, so, so like you said, when a company is developing its applications infrastructure, its network infrastructure, they need to have disaster recovery strategy in mind as part of their game plan. And, you know, talking about the elements of disaster recovery strategy, I'm sure you'll agree that it's a pretty comprehensive approach, which includes starts with risk analysis, business impact analysis, where you determine the recovery point objectives, the recovery time objectives, then, then as you said, incident response. So there are many things that go into disaster recovery planning. It is much more than a simple backup strategy. Having said that, you know, when we were having this discussion about the podcast, something you said really resonated with me. And you kind of put it along these lines. You said, how do you ensure that the disaster recovery infrastructure does not become the next security incident? So I'd love for you to expand on this. Sure. Yeah. And so, you know, as we said before, when we're core function of the sort of the, the, the first thing we need to do, obviously, for disaster recovery is to replicate our data. And so, unfortunately, for some reason, when people, you know, does that, if you make disaster recovery sort of like secondary in your thought process, or we'll get everything working perfect in production, then we'll for, turn, turn our attention there. You need, that's like a very dangerous sort of way of thinking, because you might apply that same, you might deprioritize your DR site in every aspect, including security. If you have a security vendor, a managed security provider that is accountable to ensure your global cybersecurity protection, you know, if they get wind that you have a DR site somewhere and you're copying all your most, you know, prize and critical applications and data somewhere, they were a good vendor, they'd raise their hand and say, why are we not protecting that? We need to have all of the same protections in place, if not more, uh, for that site so that it does not become an entry point. And so going back to what you were saying, when you consider what your disaster recovery strategy will be, you need to consult with them. I'll give you, you know, a simple example. Let's say you are running a legacy application, any application, let's say you're running your own application on your own hardware in a data center somewhere, and you decide that you want to use AWS uh, for, for disaster recovery only. Fine. You know, if you do it and you set it all up and you call your security vendor after you're done, and for some reason they don't support AWS or they or you have certain regulations that mandate that, you know, you inspect every packet and you're outsourcing that function to your security vendor and they can't perform that function on AWS, then obviously that's problematic. And so you have to be super careful what platforms, what vendors, what software you're using to build your applications and your infrastructure. And when you decide, you have to weigh them against your resilience framework and your security framework. You know, if you have some unit within your company that goes and you and just starts using some random SaaS platform because it makes your job easier, well, that's great. But it has to be weighed against resilience and security at the onset. 
Because if that platform, let's say, is not, I don't know, HIPAA compliant, or the uptime is not good enough, or there is no resilience, and now you've built you've built them to be part of your core application, you, it's hard. It's harder, obviously, to go back and make the change after. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Spot on. It has to be uh, disaster recovery planning. Disaster recovery strategy has to be etched into the overall planning of your infrastructure strategy, business strategy, pretty much everything, because so much hinges on how well you do disaster recovery. As we all know that when businesses fail for a variety of reasons, some are able to come back sooner than others. And especially small businesses, they tend to get hurt the most and some are unable to recover. So that's concerning. But I think uh, the advice you're providing is very, very wise. You know, uh, pushing it further, when you think about or, you know, based on your experience of best practices for disaster recovery, what do you see out there that stands out? Can you share with the listeners a couple of nuggets of what they can keep in mind? What is like the state of the art when you are planning your disaster recovery? Well, I would say that there's a lot, but there are things that people typically don't think about when they think about disaster recovery that might make the process easier. One of the ones that, that I like to talk about is software-defined networking. You know, so much of, of a proper and you know, successful DR strategy hinges upon the network. You know, if it's a website, somebody typing in the URL and it's still working. And if it's an internal application, you know, the same goes. And so there are sort of old ways of configuring network failover, DNS changes, routing policies, VPNs, and then there's sort of this new class of software-defined networking platforms that are, you don't think about them when you think about disaster recovery right away, but they have this sort of fringe benefit of of helping us automate the network failover process. So SD-WAN is one of those technologies. And if you think about what SD-WAN is doing, it really allows you to build routing rules in policy-based fashion. So if we can build a policy uh, that is tied to our you know DR site running instead of production, that's great. We can sort of pre-tune all the rules and then we can just enable the policy and disable the policy as we fail over and fail back. And that's way cleaner than injecting routes and copying and pasting commands into routers and switches or waiting for third-party DNS providers to update. And what's cool sometimes is, is you'll talk to an organization who is thinking about building a DR strategy on, on one aspect, you know, they're thinking about increasing resilience. And they might have their telecom team who is thinking about rebuilding their network and using SD-WAN. And it's great to say, well, hey, these things actually, you know, have crossover and you should do, you should move forward with the SD-WAN project, not only because, you know, you're going to save money and security and all the reasons that brought you there, but because they're going to help you on the disaster recovery side. Um, same thing for for network as a service vendors, which are super cool. And I don't want to get too technical, but these are platforms that route, allow you to reroute physical connectivity, reroute physical cross connects from one site to the other, just like we can do that with the workloads. And so instead of having to duplicate the number of links that we have it for every private link we have at production, we need to now get the same one at the DR site and pay double and monitor it. We can hit a button and reroute those physical cross connects. So those things really excite me because it, and they have nothing to do with what Optidard sells. They allow for organizations to achieve a lower RTO and have less overhead. Yeah, and appreciate those insights. Like if you focused on the technical side of things, which is I think exactly what we were planning to talk about, and I'm glad we are. But just to round up things a little bit, 
I wanted to share with the listeners the people side of things, because after all, you can't get anything done without the involvement of the right kind of people with the right motivation, the right training. So a couple of things to keep in mind from a best practices standpoint is something that's common sense, but sometimes the common sense doesn't kick in, is plan for the fact that during a disaster, people will want to be with their families. So, you know, how you manage the co-location of people who you want to involve in maybe long-term disaster recovery efforts needs to also be thought through. From a utility standpoint, do you have backups for power, water, HVAC, communications? Sounds very basic, but a lot of thought needs to go into it. Do not rely on a single provider. Do not forget the gas for the generator. How will it be refueled? Then going, uh, going on to logistics, how are you going to execute the plan? Who declares the disaster? How is the recovery team activated? How will the team get to the site, the alternate site? And many more. And that brings up the next question for you, Seiji. And that is, you know, when I was uh, sharing some of the statistics at the beginning, the one statistic that really stood out and got my attention is that around 7% of organizations never test their disaster recovery plan. Based on your experience, why is that the case? Why wouldn't organizations want to ensure that whatever they have documented, whatever they have planned actually works? Well, so that's a really tough question to answer. But some of the reasons I've seen are you know, some folks that have come to us and basically said, hey, we need to, we need a disaster recovery set up. And this is unfortunate. They are running through a list of remediation items for some sort of risk assessment. And they have a list of items that they need to be resolved, sometimes because they have to comply with specific regulation or standards based on their industry. And they'll come to us. We'll set up replication, meaning we're copying their data to the DR side. And then the next thing we start talking about is the network and, and the run books and everything else. And they disappear. They're on to, you know, for them, it's good enough. Look, we, we have our data somewhere else. What's, what's crossed it off our list? What's next on our list of items to remediate? And so I think that sometimes it, you know, just IT teams are over, overwhelmed. I think that a lot of it, sometimes it takes a outage to really get people to think about it. I think there's a lot of bad assumptions. We use the cloud, therefore we have resilience. We use the cloud, therefore we're secure. We're using Microsoft or Amazon. They must take care of everything. So there's just so many bad assumptions and misunderstandings around folks, you know, using cloud platforms. And to your point about, you know, people and availability during a disaster, you know, yeah, they may or may not be available. So I think the first thing that organizations really need to ask themselves is, do we have an appetite to take ownership and accountability of the disaster recovery strategy, the disaster recovery operations, the management, the monitoring, the enactment of it, the failover, the fail back, the testing. Is that what we want our IT team, you know, spending cycles on? And it, you know, it, it certainly speaks to the sort of larger question of what do we want to manage in house and what do we want to outsource? And the one thing I'll say is it should be one of the goals of, of CIOs today and CTOs, whoever, technical, to, to manage the complexity of their environment. Complexity is the killer. The more complex the IT environment, the harder it is to impose your security and resilience you know, requests on them, right? And so we should make a conscious effort to not sprawl our environment or use a million different applications. The simpler it is, the better it is to manage. And one of the ways to manage complexity, I think, uh, just from a, from a resource perspective, is to outsource components of the environment or ownership or management for things that we just don't have an appetite to manage in-house. And to me, backups 
and disaster recovery is low-hanging fruit because it is secondary. It's not going to be disruptive to your existing environment to set these things up. Setting up disaster recovery under backups is responsive to it. So to me, it's low-hanging fruit of, of sort of worries to get off your plate. Yep. Very, very true. In fact, you know, continuing along that vein, you know, when disaster recovery planning is taking place, I'm sure exemplar organizations are envisioning the different disaster scenarios and they are cycling through the potential consequences and how best to deal with them. And I'm sure there are organizations out there who try to simulate some of these scenarios. You know, we we read about, we hear about the tabletop exercises. And this is where I'd like to ask you, how effective are tabletop exercises in the context of rehearsing for disaster recovery? Should organizations be doing more than tabletop exercises? Yeah, I think they're very, I think they're extremely effective. I mean, you know, the more you test, the more the more issues will come to light. But, you know, you, you need to have some goals set up at, at the beginning. What is the exact scenario that, that we are testing? It's in fact, I think one of the areas where people get tripped up on this is is you do need to understand that from the beginning what type of scenarios you, you want your disaster recovery to be usable in. Meaning, you know, and this is, I'll ask this when I help people set up disaster recovery, you know, I'll ask, what are those scenarios that you want to protect against? Would you like to protect against the failure of your entire production site being unavailable because of a power pooling issue or a connectivity issue? You know, everybody says yes. Would you like to be able to use your disaster recovery if a single application fails and you want to fail over just that one application? Everybody says yes. What about a single server? What about a ransomware attack? What about other cybersecurity attacks? And of course, everybody says yes to everything. The problem is that as you go down that list, achieving a proper disaster recovery strategy becomes increasingly difficult. You can't, you cannot boil the ocean. You need to start with one of the scenarios. And ironically, the easiest scenario to start with is the entire failure. Bring up everything at the DR site because it's it's kind of all or nothing. You don't have to segment your environment. You don't have to segment your network. And so the recommendation is let's start with that scenario. Let's test against that scenario. Let's tabletop against that scenario. Let's get it perfect. And then let's peel back the layers of the onion and focus on, on the next scenarios. I love it. That's really the way to go. Assume that everything has failed and see how quickly you can come back and resume normal operations and go from there. That makes a lot of sense. So there are a couple of things I want to add. I think we are coming towards the end of our episode here. So as we start wrapping up, when I think about disaster recovery, one thing that comes to mind is the communication strategy, the clarity of communications. There are, I'm aware of several situations where, you know, companies got hit and everybody was calling everybody trying to figure out what needs to be done next. It almost seemed like they had no plan. And even if they had a plan, it wasn't practice. It wasn't rehearsed. So it's very important to have a clear communication plan and practice it, test it out. You mentioned about outsourcing and you're exactly right. There are certain things the organization may not have the resources or the technical horsepower for. They may need to outsource it. So there's nothing wrong with outsourcing, but I'm a big believer of managing the outsourcing, provide oversight, assume things can go wrong. Will the vendor be there? Is the vendor reliable enough? You've got to test it out because it has happened in the past when the vendor did not follow through with the promises. It is one thing to have it in the SLA. It is another, probably even more important, is to see that in action. So that's 
very important to check. Her, and you mentioned this, coordination of the different teams who are engaging in different activities which still come under the disaster recovery business continuity umbrella. And there is overlap. So making sure these teams are in sync, they are able to work in a collaborative fashion, in a cohesive fashion, those are all important elements of an overall disaster recovery strategy. So that's my two cents. Obviously, I'm not the expert, you are. So I'll let you have the final word. Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, just to be clear, I'm not advocating I'm not actually advocating that people should outsource TR. I'm advocating that they actually sit down and think about who, sh- you know, should they do, you know, just have the, have the, go through the workflow and go th- and have the conversation. Sh- you know, is this something that we want to own or do we want to outsource it? Now, I totally agree with you. If you do outsource it, you can't just be like, you know, just forget about it. You know, with Optinine, Optinine will actually we nudge our customers twice a year, actually send out notifications and say it's time to test and we will manage the entire testing process. But, you know, nothing precludes the requirement to do testing. And it's not even the IT, it's not even the vendor that should do the testing on your behalf. They don't know what your application, they, they can't smell out the application acting different. Even in organizations, IT team shouldn't be doing the testing. The users who are using and consuming the applications every day are the ones that need to do the testing. They'll be able to just smell out something wrong. And that is the, sort of like the, the ultimate de- determining factor if it's successful or not. Fantastic. Well, Sadie, you have a, a, the final word. Was that your final thoughts or do you have anything else you'd like to add? That's it. That's it. This was fun. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. A special thanks to Sadie Brody for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization. 